This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have no choice. I alone can fix it. Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, and this week we've got a very special episode for you with a very special guest. We're welcoming to the podcast for the first time the journalist and author Gary Young. Donald Trump's candidacy, like his hair, may be brazen, ridiculous and ostentatious, but is in fact real. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall! Gary became The Guardian's US correspondent in 2003 and spent more than a decade living in and reporting from America. I saw it as my mission less to judge the United States than to understand it, he wrote on his return to Britain. In his writing, he's documented America's social and economic challenges, the role of race in the country's politics and the deadly consequences of US gun laws. Now The Guardian's editor-at-large, Gary took an unusual approach to covering the 2016 presidential election, spending the final month of the campaign in one small town in Indiana called Muncie, nicknamed Middletown America. Over the last couple decades, Muncie has transformed as a city known for one thing into a city that is connected worldwide. Nicole Griffin has more. Muncie, Indiana was once known as a thriving industrial city. But many years later, now that factories have closed, some still remain abandoned, like the one behind me, the Borg Warner factory. It was a sociological study in the 1920s that first coined the term Middletown, identifying Muncie as representative of Middle America. So after 20 years of covering presidential elections, Gary went to see what Middletown could teach us about the modern-day USA during an election like no other. What does Middletown look like today? Can it help explain a US election result that few people predicted? And do we have middle towns in the UK which could help us understand our own political upheaval? Hi, Gary. It's really nice to have you here. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for battling through the snow to be with us. Uh, you spent a month during the 2016 US election um, in Muncie, Indiana, mm -hmm. a town nicknamed Middletown, America. Mm -hmm. um, could you just talk to us a bit about what that was like? Um, what does Middletown look like? How has it changed? What was it like reporting from there? Sure. So the reason I went to Muncie originally was uh, two reasons, really. The first was because... Delaware County, where Muncie is, had voted for Bernie Sanders mm. and Donald Trump in the primaries. And so there was this kind of insurgent thing. And I felt that this election was about insurgency. Mm -hmm. The second reason I went there uh, was because there had been this study called Middletown in the 20s, where a husband and wife couple of sociologists had gone there to map out both quantitatively and qualitatively, what middle America looked like. And they called it Middletown. They never actually said it was Muncie, but everybody knew it was Muncie. Mm. It was everything from do people bake their own bread now as opposed to before, do they, you know, where the lights went on in the morning. So class, gender. Interestingly, though Muncie has a sizable black population, they just decided not to cover 
the black people in Muncie, um, and um, and so this myth of a of a an essential America, a true America, Sarah Palin's real America, mm. was kind of born in that moment, and black people weren't part of it. Mm. Uh, so those are the reasons that I went now. Nowadays, Muncie is a kind of post-industrial town. Mm-hmm. Uh, used to have a lot of steel mills. There's a great picture of JFK meeting the steel workers there. The kind of unions were strong. Um, there were jobs. There were jobs in town. In the book Middletown, they map out the, the Muncie in terms of race and class. And it's almost exactly the same now. So there is a wealthy white bit, there's a poor white bit, and there's the African-American bit. The difference is that the poor white bit now is crushed. It's decimated. It's kind of, um, there's no industry. The houses um, are in collapse. They're, there's a really bad opioid problem. Mm-hmm. Most people that I spoke to, including the head of Middletown Studies in the uh, local university, said... It's easier to get a handle on the black population in Muncie because even though they're poorer, there are institutions. Whereas in white working class Muncie, the unions are gone, the churches aren't as strong, it's difficult kind of community to penetrate. Mm. And I was there kind of trying to find out in the run-up to the election just how people were kind of engaging with uh, this moment. And the idea was journalistically to stay in one place for the month, as opposed to what we're used to doing, which is we're going to do jobs, we'll go to Ohio, we're going to do Latinos, we're going to go to Arizona, Mm -hmm. and and you fly in and you do jobs, the whole town could be coming down with dysentery or gonorrhea, it wouldn't matter, Mm -hmm. you've gone to do jobs, that's what you're going to do, and then you come back pretty much with a story that you were sent to do. So this was more a journey of discovery. Is Middletown an anomaly or do you think what you learn there can be um, expanded to to other cities and speak to a little bit of uh, what caused the huge rise in support for Trump? So it's his own place, certainly, but mm. then there were some commonalities. That insurgency didn't come from nowhere. People, the local Republican Party was very divided between a quite insurgent group of kind of people who wanted lower taxes and who wanted the school board taken out of local control, which they have done now. And um, the local Democrats were completely riven between the establishment uh, Democratic Party, which backed Clinton and which kind of had a reputation for rigging elections. When I arrived, the FBI was investigating the local town hall for kind of kickbacks and stuff like that. And so there was this general sense among lots of people that they were being stiffed. Who was stiffing them was a different matter, Mm. but that was certainly translatable, this kind of sense that all is not right with your polity. And that the connection between you and your polity has been riven, that something drastic had to happen. Another thing that became clear from the Republican side was that most people that I spoke to didn't love Trump, who were going to vote for him. And all of the criticisms, or most of the criticisms that I would make and most left or liberal people would make, they recognised. They wouldn't be that bothered about all of them, so they would want to be tougher on immigration, 
they, you know, they wouldn't be particularly kind of necessarily racially enlightened. But the notion of him being boorish, you know, one guy said he was a kind of mouthy SOB. Mm. One woman said he was a kind of a, a word butcher and an entitled white man, but they were still going to vote for him. Mm. And the other thing that I really learned from them was just how much they hated Hillary Clinton. I mean, an intense loathing that without really getting a whiff of that, you couldn't understand why people would have done what they did. I do feel like Donald Trump says that we have been overlooked and we're the mainstream here. I was born and raised in this country. Your husband signed laughter, which was one of the worst things that ever happened well, to the manufacturing industry. That is your you go to New England, you go to Ohio, Pennsylvania. NAFTA is the worst trade deal maybe ever signed anywhere, but certainly ever signed in this country. And now you want to approve Trans-Pacific Partnership, and that will be almost as bad as NAFTA. Nothing will ever well, top NAFTA. That, that is just not accurate. And where, where do you think that come, came from? I think it came from a few things. Um, some of it was misogyny, without mm. a doubt. Some of it was just a lingering loathing of any liberal Democrat. Yeah. Right? They hated Obama. They accused Bill Clinton of murdering people and flying in drugs from all over and so on. But also there, there was a basis for some of it. Mm. The head of the local Republican Party said he was the last, he was the one that put the last machine on the truck that took the machines to Mexico mm. when, the, when the plants closed down. NAFTA, which many say, you know, killed the town. Well, that was Bill Clinton's thing. Hillary was slightly more, had developed a critique, if you like. But Hillary was essentially standing for Obama's third term. Mm. she's someone who's been in the public eye since the late 80s. That coincides with the period of time when this town had gone into inexorable decline. Mm. And so the notion that you would vote for really a symbol of the establishment that has failed you, some people were like, well, why would mm. I do that? And what you saw when the returns came in was that really mirrored what happened in the rest of the country, which was Trump won through ambivalence. Yeah. Really. So uh, in the rich white areas, the vote was up and the margins for Trump were up as mm. opposed to kind of Romney. In the black areas, the margins were up for Hillary, but the numbers were down. Mm. So a high percentage of black people voting for Hillary, but fewer of them. And in the poor white areas that had twice voted for Obama in the working-class white areas. The numbers were way down, and they'd flipped to Trump, only marginally. Mm. The white working class were very much the junior part of the coalition in the Trump coalition, really. Mm. People have this sense, a bit like Brexit, I think, of this revolt of the kind of unwashed. Mm -hmm. uh, when, in fact, when you look at the... Uh, when you look at the numbers, it was rich white people are his base. Mm. And poor white people flipped or stayed at home. And mm. that's how he won. So you, you've spoken a little bit about 
us needing to have kind of an intersectional approach to understanding what happened with Trump. And we've spoken a little bit about race already. But I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that and whether you think that some of the economic declines that you've mentioned inevitably lead to a rise in racism and hostility towards people of colour and migrants. I don't think it's inevitable for the simple reason that the people at the roughest end of this economic decline are black people and Latinos, and they don't move towards greater racism Mm. either against themselves or each other or against white people. So I don't think it's inevitable. What I do think is that in the absence of a class conversation, in Mm. the absence of a class culture politically, then where do the white working class, poor white people, unorganised, disorganised, Where do they go? Mm. Where do they put their anxiety? Now, of course, some of them do make the leap towards solidarity, non-racial democracy, and so on. And it's at this point you just have to remember that America was 200 years a slave state, Mm. 100 years an apartheid state, and it's only been a non-racial democracy for 50 years. So it's not an obvious place to go, necessarily. Uh, Indiana, uh, where Muncie is, is getting towards the South. Mm. And so if you don't have that class conversation, then you don't have that kind of um, ideological glue that creates the potential for people to pull their pain and therefore pull their resistance. Mm. And um, I think that's been, you know, a major problem. And... Some of that's on the Democrats, of course it is, that mm. the Democrats have not kind of leveraged that, that Hillary, there were two things I thought on election night with, with, with relation to Britain, and the first was, okay, well, if Trump won, has won, then that shows that what we think is electable is not mm. true, that there is more volatility in terms of what, we assume to be possible electorally, and that could only go in Corbyn's favour. But the other was, honestly, on election night, I thought, thank God Britain has actually, or the British left has actually done that. Mm. Not because Corbyn is great, because he has all the answers, but because at least they've moved away from what is clearly a failing trajectory the triangulating, all elections are won in the centre when there is no centre, kind of milk toast managerial kind of, well, in America it's not even social democracy, but that very, very centrist, flavourless, can't we all get along stuff, which wasn't working. Mm. And that wherever Labour was going to end up, at least there had been a rupture from that. Because the one thing, I've been back to Muncie since, and yeah. the thing, one of the things that intrigued me was the degree to which liberals and the left there had not processed why they lost. Mm. That they were so overwhelmed with the Trump, Trumpiness yeah. of the, you know, so distraught actually in many ways. And there was so much to deal with And that processing it is hard in the same way that dealing with what happened in the Labour Party in Britain is is hard and you don't know where it's going to go. But 
the reality is it can't go back to where it was. Mm. And it's still not clear that that's been figured out on an electoral level. Mm. So just to just to stay in the US for, for a second mm. longer, what would it take for Middletown and, and others like it to fix its problems if it's about globalization and economics? Do we need international solutions? Yeah, I'm just kind of wondering whether you think that now with Trump in office, some of the economic solutions that are being posed will actually start to benefit those places. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. I don't think they will, not the, not the ones being proposed by Trump, anyway. I mean, some of it in America is very remedial. I mean, they need, an, they need some... They need health care. <laughs> in the absence of health care, you have an opioid epidemic. It's very difficult to see how you cure an opioid epidemic without health care, without mm. a health care system that works for everybody. A kind of um, social contract within NAFTA mm. that stops the race to the bottom would make a huge difference, not just to America, but to Mexico and other places as well. That If you imagine the EU without the social contract, where you can just have um, capital dumping, well, that's kind of, you know, what NAFTA did. And it's actually really bad for Mexico and for America. Mm. Rex Nord announced six weeks ago it was leaving, relocating its Indianapolis operation to Mexico. And he says, we have a meeting at 2.30 on the back dock. It became clear that the best way to stay competitive and protect the business for long term is to move production from our facility in Indianapolis to Monterey, Mexico. At one stage while I was there, I drove all along the Mexico border from Brownsville to San Diego. And all along the border there are, if you just, I mean, sometimes you can literally throw a stone over the border mm. and hit the uh, maquiladoras, the factories mm. that they've just shifted from somewhere in America and they've put them right over the border where they can just pay people in. I mean, you couldn't mm. get more... You'd want to say cynical, but logical, actually. I mean, that's what capitalism will do if it has the chance. So, um, yeah, if, if they had a social contract and after that would make a huge difference, and in the absence of that, then they shouldn't have NAFTA, really. Mm. And so, so what does all this mean for the UK or what are some of the implications? Obviously, we've talked about race and class and we've talked a little bit about the fractures out of which Trump was born and, and perhaps Corbyn too. Um, so what I'm wondering is, do we have a middle town here in the UK? If so, how comparable would it be to Muncie? I mean, the thing about the concept of middle town is it can be whatever you want it to be, right? Muncie only became middle town because they said it was. Mm. They could have chosen somewhere else. I mean, the town that I grew up in, Stevenage, which had... Uh, a significant industrial base, which it lost, which was uh, created by the Labour government around the same time as the NHS, and which has voted for the government in every election since 1979, has voted, you know, Labour when the country votes Labour, Tory when the country votes Tory. In some ways feels very, uh, feels kind of quite familiar each election produces a different middle town in Britain, doesn't it? So, like mm. Basildon or Nun, um, what was the last? Was it Nuneaton? Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, there's always um, uh, there's always somewhere. 
some extent, I think you're dealing with very similar, you, you are dealing with some similar things, which is what is our place in this global constellation mm. and how do we make a living in this moment? Now, outside of America, things get less lethal. We have less guns. We we don't have, we don't kill people through the judicial system. Um, we have some kind of health care. And um, less fractured socially, just the gap between rich and poor is, is, um, is less great, although it's growing. Mm. And otherwise we're in different parts of trajectory in terms of empire. We, you know... Our concern about being of losing empire was maybe 30 or 40 odd years ago, whereas America it's heightened that sense of um, of losing its grip of mm. China taking over of no one respecting us anymore of losing two wars uh, in rapid succession and now losing the trade war that in that sense America is kind of closer to its Suez moment, I guess. Mm. But both countries in different ways are in the process of doing themselves irreparable damage. Mm. And what's not clear is how enduring that damage will be. Mm. Like that kind of, um, you speak to folk in, the, um, in Muncie and they'll say, maybe this is what we needed in order to to be motivated. That's what mm. liberals will say. Maybe this is what it took. Our only concern is by the time that we correct this, there won't be anything yeah. left. Mm. In some ways, I heard more of that there than I would... I would like to hear more of that here. Mm. Maybe because Brexit is a longer process, mm. whereas the election, once it happened, it happened. I'm not convinced that British, the British left has actually processed why that referendum was lost. Mm. I'm not convinced that if they had the election again, that it wouldn't be lost again. Mm. Uh, and what would have to happen in order to kind of turn that around beyond the actual European Union thing itself to get to the kind of root causes of the alienation and so on that caused enough people to um, uh, to vote out. I think just as in America, there is a kind of fairly, quite an ugly comfort zone in terms of just sitting back and just talking smack about Trump. Mm. He's, it's, there's nothing easier. And then saying, well, anybody who votes for him is an idiot or a bigot or a racist, without really processing the fact that that means that they are better than did they are better organized than you. Certainly, I mean, in America, he didn't win the popular vote, so they're not more numerous. But mm. they're better. You know, what if they're so stupid? Then why did they win? Yeah. And it can't be a question of stupidity. If it is, then let's all just pack up and go home. If people are just too stupid to know what they want, then who you know who, mm. who's anybody to say that? I feel that. In both countries, the, the consequences of these things have been insufficiently processed. In Britain, though, that rupture 
with the previous trajectory in terms of what the left stroke centre-left might do has at least happened. And while we don't exactly know where it's going, it's at least moving. Mm. It's at least moving somewhere, whereas in America that has not happened. One of the things I saw in Muncie when I went back a year after the inauguration, on the Democrat side, all of the liberals were doing something that they weren't doing the year before. They were organising, they were standing for something, they were, they'd, they'd, you know, signed up for a campaign. The local anti-racist group had got bigger, the League of Women Voters had got bigger. The other thing I saw was that the Republicans that I spoke to, most of whom didn't vote for Trump in the primaries, all thought that he was doing a pretty good job. Yeah. And that that was a pretty rational calculation. He was delivering for them. Mm. And he was delivering for them in a way that a year after Obama was inaugurated, his voters were much less pleased than Trump's were. Mm. Would you say that they're... They feel he's he's still delivering. I mean, with the news that came out today around what he's been saying um, about the NRA and, and gun reform, I know that, that your most recent book was about gun crime. And in the wake of the Florida shooting and the kind of uh, subsequent never again kind of movement uprising that's come out of that, um, I guess I just wanted to ask a little bit, first of all, about, um, about some of Trump's comments today, but also how much of a connection you think there is between um, class and race um, and resistance to gun control in America? I mean, in terms of connection with class and race and gun control, there was, there had been insufficient connection. Mm. That the gun control movement, for the most part, was white and suburban, and um, was inspired at least in part by a fear of the ghetto coming to the suburb, yeah. which means that the very people most likely to be affected by gun violence were least likely to engage with them. Uh, and in some cases were kind of set up in opposition, really. And that's what kind of gives gives hope in terms of the Parkland um, shooting, because they're young, mm. because the kind of learned hopelessness around gun control debate, they haven't learned that yet. They were 12 when Sandy Young happened. Mm. This is new. And they feel that they can change things, and that's often how things get changed. Mm. Uh, it's why I think young people are often central to kind of most radical moments in politics, because uh, they won't take no for an answer, or they're much less likely to take no for an answer, and they have a future to fight for. Mm. So there is there is potential in this moment, and the. Tendency towards cynicism, I completely understand. I ran out of adjectives for mass shootings after 12 years of working mm -hmm. there, probably after about five years of working there. You'd see another mass shooting, and you'd just say, well, I've got nothing new to say. It's the same thing. Mm. But, you know, you can't fatten a pig on market day. These things take time. And when you have a political culture that has not has decided not to debate this for pretty much a generation. If you look back at Clinton's speech after Columbine, he doesn't mention gun control. Mm. We don't know yet all the hows or whys of this tragedy. 
perhaps we may never fully understand it. St. Paul reminds us that we all see things in this life through a glass darkly, that we only partly understand what is happening. We do know that we must do more to reach out to our children and teach them to express their anger and to resolve their conflicts with words, not weapons. It's been a generation where this has just kind of been removed from mainstream political conversation and it only returned when after Sandy Hook so it's you know so it's it's relatively recent so I I I'm kind of quite hopeful what what would need to happen now is that these young kids in Florida will have to kind of make some connections with the people at the rough end which might start with connections with people yeah, other young kids in poorer, darker neighbourhoods. You know, mm. Parkland is quite an affluent area. And I don't think it's any coincidence that the primary voice to come out of this, Emma Gonzalez, mm-hmm. would be a queer Latina woman. Mm. That That would seem to kind of reflect where the balance of, demographic balance of resistance would be going. You know, it was three women who started the Black Lives Matter movement. Young women in particular are kind of increasingly taking major leadership roles mm-hmm. um, in these organisations. And it comes at this, in this period where resistance is in the air, where their parents maybe have been demonstrating, where they've seen people, dem- you know, where there have been lots of demonstrations in the in the years, in the three or four years that they have been politically conscious, assuming they became politically conscious in their teens, mm. there's been a lot going on that would have sparked their imagination. That would not have been true, for example, when I was 17 in 1986. Mm. Paradoxically, Trump's victory has actually spurred an awful lot of energy, and these would be some of the kind of principal beneficiaries of, the, of this energy. We call BS that us kids don't know what we're talking about, that we're too young to understand how the government works. We call BS. If you agree, register to vote. Contact your local congresspeople and give them a piece of your but as you say, the kind of the media obviously has a has a big role to play in this. And one of the things that I saw that stood out for me around the the Florida shooting was um, some of the young teens involved coming out and saying, you know, we're we're taking these these lessons and these tactics from our friends in the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. and they're not, you know, getting coverage and and things like that. And so I guess. Um, Following on from your Channel 4 documentary last year, obviously Mm. there was lots of stuff kind of coming out about the connections between the way that we think and talk about race in the UK and the way that they do in the US. And a a personal question for me that I'm really interested in is, I know that you mentioned that there's a a lack of kind of a class conversation analysis there. Do you think that there is as much of a kind of emergent conversation around race and what race means in the UK as there is in the the US? There's not, I don't think. And I, I don't think there ever has been. I think there could be. Hmm. I mean, one of the central distinctions I would say between here and there when it comes to race is that our civil rights movement took place abroad, by and large. It was in Ghana and India and 
and Jamaica and wherever it was, the anti-colonial movements. And, and by and large, not entirely, there was resistance here, but the, most of the codified racism took place elsewhere. And because the codified racism took place elsewhere, there's a kind of missing link in the kind of education of our political culture, really, mm. that kind of race is so enmeshed, um, overtly enmeshed in the American polity um, that it's in- impossible to ignore. Whereas here there's plausible deniability. Yeah. Then there are also less of us. And then we are here a more integrated country, and, and by which I kind of primarily mean on the day-to-day that mm. social segregation is a lot less stark, residential segregation is a lot less stark, and uh, certainly in terms of mixed-race relationships and so on, things are a lot less stark, which just complicates the racial conversation. It doesn't, it doesn't obviate it, but it, mm. um, it complicates it in a way that is not true. If you can say, right, we're going to organise this block, and in this block, everyone's black, mm. and we're going to have a march from this block, we're going to go to that block where we know everyone's black, and we're going to keep going. On the flip side of that, in Britain, we, our racial conversation is less balkanised, that mm. African-Americans and Latinos don't talk to each other as much as they should, I think, politically. And so that notion of a politically black conversation, those alliances that emerge, even if they're not stated, between people who are African-Caribbean, people who are African, people who are Bangladeshi, or whose parents are, or whose, uh, whose ethnicity is, and who find common cause who have a common conversation even if they're not really talking to each other much when they find each other they know what to talk about Mm. um uh that's that's uh less true there so we have a different conversation but and our conversation is also less central to the broader resistance some of that i think is the natural order of things we're smaller and so on, uh, we're less well organised. We have less institutions, mm-hmm. you know, than Black Americans got in, in political institutions that are over hundred years old. <sighs> but there's also that problem of plausible deniability, and that is a problem here. That I don't think it's possible to have the Brexit conversation without having the Empire conversation. Yeah, that's just a conversation we never had. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Or never had usefully. I don't think it's possible to have the Brexit conversation without having the immigration conversation, and that's not a proper conversation we've ever had. And in that very British way that people just don't talk about things, <laughs> mm. there, there's a bunch of stuff that's been parked and it's gone rancid. Mm. And particularly in this moment with Brexit, it all came back to bias in the arse, basically. Mm. And some of the skewed conversations that we were having, say, about um, uh, Islam really kind of sticks out for me. 
that the weird conversation we're having about Islam and segregation and integration, and then Brexit comes along, and overwhelmingly Muslims vote to stay in the European Union. Mm. And the people, it turns out, who have struggled to integrate, uh, among others, are sections of uh, uh, poor white Britain who have not found a place for themselves in this country and who feel resentful about the place that they had being lost. Mm. And so it's felt increasingly glaring to me that the absence or the paucity of our racial conversation is part of the reason why we are where we are. I mean, I could obviously talk to you about this for the rest of the evening. <laughs> it's something that's um, very near and dear to me, but unfortunately we don't have time for any more. Um, but thanks so much for taking the time uh, to talk to us, Gary. Uh, it's been really wonderful. Um, if you have enjoyed listening to Gary as much as I have, lovely listener, uh, then go ahead, leave us a rating or a review uh, on the Apple Podcast app. Um, and tell everyone you know to have a listen, share, like, all those wonderful things. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by Hugh Jordan and James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. See you next week. Bye.